This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Marcelo Perez is the founder and CEO of Untamed Angling. An architect and passionate angler, Marcelo grew up in Argentina, where he fine-tuned his fly fishing skills and gravitated towards the illustrious Golden Dorado. This fascination would eventually lead him to open a number of wilderness fishing operations, which are modeled around teaming up on a 50-50 partnership with indigenous jungle tribes. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss untamed angling successes and challenges, the behavior of Golden Dorado, what it's like fishing in the jungle, and more. So, Marcelo Perez. Yeah, let, that's, let's a, tell that's you. me. look if if i sound more comfortable with marcelo it's because i am i spent a week fishing with him in bolivia and anybody who's been to bolivia especially with your operation knows that it's just inevitable you end up bonding with whoever you fish with even under high pressure situations with cameramen who don't speak english i (laughs) remember (laughs) (laughs) let's start off with with your story so where were you born and raised well, I'm, I was born in Argentina, uh, and I was raised there in Buenos Aires. I'm an architect, uh, but I, I, I was a fisherman since I was a little boy uh, because of my father. And I used to fish for Dorado in the Paraná Basin in those days since I was 10 years old, more or less. So I was passionate. I am passionate about this fish uh, for my whole life. So I started to go further and further in different places to find better fishing because those days the Paraná system was very in very bad shape. Uh, the commercial fishing and the civilization was, was doing a really big damage to the fisheries. So I started to get into the jungle and, and find new places. 
But I was working as an architect, and in 2001, I started the idea of untamed angling, and, and I founded the company. And I do it in parallel with architecture for a couple of years. Uh, and finally, I left uh, my office to my business partner those days and, and dedicated my whole time to fishing because it's my passion. And you're a really good angler. That's the other thing. Really? I, yeah, you've done this. You you can tell that you you do a lot of fishing. <laughs> I did a lot of fishing, yes. Mostly in salt water. I mean, I'm not the classic trout angler, you know. I'm a little bit rude. My casting is not very orthodox. Is is I'm used to cast uh, big heavy flies with big heavy lines and and in tough environments. But yes, I, I managed to find my own style, you know, and, and, and catch Dorados most of the time. I'm very lucky. I, mean, I always need, like you, the, the, in that trip, you remember, I always need a, an indigenous guide with me because I don't see anything. You know, I'm quite, not blind, but I cannot see, you know, the fish is some, this disconnection between my eyes and my brain, but I cannot see the fish. But when I fish with an indigenous partner there, you know how they see it, you know. So they point it and they say, between that rock and the other rock, then I cast there and always it's a fish there. You know? So uh, it's, a, I mean, at the same time, it's a very good experience to fish with them. Yeah, oh, big time. For me, it was, it really made up the experience, but we'll talk about that when we get to Bolivia. Yeah. I have fished for Dorado in Argentina in that big river. I think it, what was the big river you called it? Uh, the Paraná. The Paraná. Uh, and is that the one that your guys just to the You have side two big rivers, the Uruguay and the Paraná River. Both of them goes to the Rio de la Plata. Right, river. right, right. Yep. And uh, but the most of the fisheries are located in the Paraná watershed. And but I started with a fishery in the Uruguay in a, it was a crazy project called La Zona because of the twilight zone. Uh, it was a forbidden area of, uh, of a tailwater of a dam. And, uh, that was my first project. I was working for four years to create a project mixing the biological research with catch and release with the strict rules to fish there. And, and, uh, finally we got the permits to, to start the operation there. And it was a place with gigantic dorado. Gigantic. I mean, all the world records are there. Like how big when you say gigantic? Uh, one of our customers got a fish of about 60 pounds. That's huge. Why was it forbidden? Waited. What, sorry? Forbidden? Why? Yeah. It is forbidden because of security issues with the dam. And also right. it's a, it's a border between, between Argentina and Uruguay, the border between both countries. So the guard costs are there and there's a limit you cannot pass. Uh, in in the river or or in the shore, you cannot you cannot go there. So we 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 work a lot on that project, and it created a very interesting fishery. But uh, and we broke uh, our customers broke all the world records in in a couple of months probably <laughs> about Dorado, and it get very famous because of that because of that place the fish. I mean, but that's all. Boat fishing, right? You can't do anything Boat offshore fishing. there. Yes, yes, and the river is not is murky. Sometimes it's a little more clear, but it's not clear. It's not clear water, and you fish from a boat, and 
it's a destination that was more uh, people that like it was more from bikecasting or you know conventional, but not conventional bikecasting mostly. Uh, even when we we were we were trying to do a fly fishing only project, but the government of both countries, the biologists of the go- both countries, uh, established an idea of using also lures with just one single hook. And then the, the bite casting market get crazy about that fishery because you can cut, I don't know, 40 dorados over 30 pounds in a day, you know. Why do they gravitate towards the dam? Well, it's, uh, you know, the dam was built in a place where uh, where it was a, like a big fall that crossed over all the river from one shore to the other one. So the engineers used that difference of, uh, how would they say, hike? Yeah, yeah, hi. Uh, the gradient. The difference of, yes, the gradient was about 25 meters. So they, they took advantage of that and, and built the dam right there in the rapids. So the bottom of the river was completely rocky. And when they opened the gates of the dam, it was like big currents against the, um, through the rocks and, and all that stuff. But the most important thing is that the dam, even when it has some stairs, for the fish that migrate. And you know that in our rivers, most of the fish are migratory. Uh, the, fa- the fact is that all the bait fish that migrate in different months get stuck in these first, first 1,000 meters. So it created, a, and, and at the same time, it was completely forbidden for people. So it created like a fast food you know, uh, restaurant for Dorado <laughs> every day, 24 hours per day. The fish were feeding there and they get really big and fat because of that. It's like if you are, if you are throwing food to a predator the whole day, you know, it will get big for sure. And, and all the predators will be around. So it was, the, I mean, the, the, the landscape was not beautiful. It was a dam, but, uh, but anyway, and with the wires and all that stuff. But anyway, the scenery in the water was crazy. Feeding Francis all around, birds crashing around. The birds, the big birds, I mean, the cormorants, were not comfortable staying in the water because of the dorados. They just go and come and go away immediately, you know? Yeah, I would too. uh, yeah, it was, it was, terrifying. it was dangerous. Yes, it was dangerous. Yeah, were big fish crashing bait all the time. Was it a resting spot for them? Did you get any criticism by people no. saying this is a resting spot? No, it's not a resting spot. It's a, it's a, <laughs> the Dorado is a very um, adaptive fish. You know, you can find it in many, many different environments. Unfortunately, they are very adaptive to the civilization. So they took advantage of this, this situation created by the dam. And at the same time, as if the first mile is forbidden, they they stop migrating, most of them, and and do everything right there. They, they spawn there, we saw them spawning there, they feed there, and most of the big, big fish stop the migration. Some of them still migrate. But if you go, I don't know, 15 kilometers downstream from the dam, there are two big cities, one in Uruguay and another one in Argentina. And it was 
plenty of nets. It is plenty of nets and people fishing and all that stuff. So imagine that they, they would kill them all. If they migrate like normally, uh, they will be, I mean, they will kill them all. So the Dorados are not stupid. They stay there. So they'll eat Dorado in Argentina and Uruguay? Uh, in South America, many people eat Dorado. No, not now, probably the last right. decade. Uh, people, I mean, anglers started to change their minds about, about killing Dorado. But in the past, I mean, in Corrientes, where you went to fish, you went to fish with Pinti, if I don't... Yeah, and he yes, had a I'm, gun. He had a gun on him because he was like, in case we run into any issues with the guys over at my gun. Well, in that area where PNT fish, uh, in the past, the guides, the the conventional guides, there were no fly fishing guides there. They were just conventional. They they used to bring all the fish, the biggest fish, and throw it in the sandbanks where all the boats come, you know, and all the people is waiting for the boats and they throw all this big Paku and big Subim and big Dorados just to show that they are very good guys. You know, that was the way the, the way that they thought they would be gaining more customers. And, and that's what happened those days. Most of the people kill the fish, you know. In certain situations, I'm all for keeping fish. But the reason why I'm surprised is because in Bolivia, it seemed as though they cherish the fish or they, they, they won't eat them. They certainly won't kill no. them in Bolivia. Is that no. more than just because of revenue and, and you know, economics? Is it because of anything else? Is there a spiritual attachment to Dorado there? Uh, the Indians, in, I mean, if you speak about regular people or people in, people in the city, they kill the fish too, like in other countries. But the Indians have some legends about, about hunting the sabalo. The sabalo is the bait fish that uh, Dorado normally eats in the Bolivian rivers. And, and they hunt, the Indians are hunters of fish, basically. That's why they see it so well, because they evolved uh, through thousands and thousands of years hunting for fish with bows and arrows. So they have to have a perfect sight and understand all the signs, you know. But, uh, the, this, uh, the, the, the way that the Dorado hunt for Sabalo there in, in our rivers is that they, they started to push the fish to the, to the shallow water in the banks. And then when they surround a big school of Sabalo, they attack all together. You know, it's like a gang that, that is, they're pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, and then they attack. So this situation makes easier for the hunter, for the Indians to catch Sabalos with bows and arrows. And the Sabalo is the principal protein of the Chimanes and the Yuracares, the ethnics that lives in, in the Chimane area. Right. Okay. So they were like a hunting buddy. So in that in that way, they are like hunting parties. Yeah. Okay. You know? That makes sense. All right. Back to Argentina, because I'm just really interested in this. So that was your first project. Ever. Yeah. But the, the idea was exactly, well, barely, not exactly, but barely the same than we have now in Antemgangling. It was a catch and release uh, fishery with a regulation, very strict regulation, uh, with a conserva conservation uh, idea, you know, because we were doing, a, for the first time, a, a research about Dorado, taking advantage of, of, on, the, on the fishing. And we were training local people to be guards and to work in the, in the operation. 
So the idea is a, more or less the same thing that we do now. After that, I started, I did another projects, even in Seychelles. I started a project in, in the Roche Island in Seychelles uh, for three years. <laughs> I was working there. And then I, I had another project in Tierra del Fuego, but my, my attention was always focused in the jungle and in that, in the Dorado. And, and I started to work with, with indigenous people in Argentina, in Misiones, because it was a couple of rivers that, that were interesting to start. And I started to study the Indian rights in our countries in South America that are a little different than from a regular citizen um, regarding their own lands, you know? So uh, using that and thinking about that, I started to think in the, in the current model that we work with in Antetangling, which is based in a partnership with the natives and, and another things, you know, we, we did the same thing with that. We do a, sorry, we do a, the, things, the same thing. We do a, a biological research with a group of biologists that now is, is an NGO, the Wildlife Conservation Society here in Bolivia. We are studying the fish. I will go there afterwards uh, because there are some interesting things about this fish in Bolivia. And, and uh, we, are, we are helping to protect a big amount of land, of forest. And mostly the, the most important thing is that we are providing, the project provides a big economical benefit to the, to the villages, to the Indian villages. So they protect a big amount of area and do not allow another extractive uh, activities like miners or log cutters or whatever. You know, they don't they don't allow that that things in their territory. Uh, the place where we work now in Simane is a national park, but also an indigenous territory. So they have they are, they have their their own rights there. Mm -hmm. You know, so and we are we are their partners. So. It, the model was evolving along these years, and we finished here, and then we uh, copied the, this same model uh, and used it in our projects in Brazil, in indigenous territories. We have uh, another four projects in Brazil, exactly the same. Right. Yeah. Before you get into fish, because I, I've got so many questions about the fish themselves. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, how yeah. does it, how does that look? So what you just, do you just land yourself in some, do you hire a pilot and land in some random territory and say, hi, please don't kill me. This is what I want to propose. Like, how do you, how do you More approach this? <laughs> Can you tell me a sto <laughs> the story about how you approach them in Bolivia? And just so that I've, I've got it clear, cause yes. I always have a hard time saying it. It's, it's the, it's the Samani people. Yes. The first, uh, the first village where we land was a pure Simane village, no other ethnics. There are four ethnics in the national park, in the territory, but if you go up, upstream in the river, there's more and more Simane. But anyway, there are a few villages, you know, there are small and few villages along the river. That's why it's, and it's impossible to get there if you don't go in a small plane. There's no way to go across the river, there's no roads, so that's why it's so protected and so wild. You know? uh, it's probably one of the wildest places on earth. I would, probably. I would agree with you. Yes. 
And then uh, I have a group of friends that went there uh, in 2006. We heard about the place because it was a, a Bolivian outfitter in the 90s. The, the, probably they were more hunters than, than anglers. They have some operations. They're still working on hunting. And they have some operations of hunting and some spots where they fish. For small peacock bass, like in Bolivia, there's a species of peacock bass, many of them, but smaller. And then they started with this operation in Asunta village in the 90s. So I have some customers of La Zona that went there, mostly bait casters, because these guys, the, 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 the idea of this uh, operator was completely different. They kill all the fish. The, the pictures in the in the website was a wire with 40 cacus hanging there or a big moturo killed or whatever. Moturo is a gigantic catfish. You know? So uh, they were there for three years, I think, or more or less. And something happened. Uh, it was an accident that an Indian died or something happened, that, but they left the place and, and in the late 90s. So the Indians has no more contact with anybody else for many, many years. But we knew about the place. So these friends went there with a pilot. Uh, they were trying to search where the place was because we didn't know. And they were there in September of 2006. So one of them called me to start Simania, the Simania idea, you know because he knew about my projects with the Indians in Argentina and also he knew about La Zona. And uh, he called me and we came back in October 2006, uh, 15 days after we came back to Asunta. And then we explored the upper part of the river. They didn't went very, very far upstream in the first trip, but in the second trip, we explored it a lot. And I started to to discuss the idea with the Indians and then with the Indian authorities and then with the national park authorities. And it took me three years of developing, of getting all the people involved and all the contracts and all that stuff and the licenses, basically. And then we found uh, some anglers who wanted to invest in that crazy idea because imagine it was, now you think about Simane like a successful operation but those days it was a crazy adventure you know it was in the middle of nowhere there were no no logistics nothing it was really complicated let me tell you when we were fishing we were exploring the place i was in the tent at night with a small um, paper and a pencil thinking about how to fish this place with a customer you know Along seven, six, six days, seven nights, six days of fishing. I was, it was quite impossible because if you go up, you ruin the fishery. If you go down, you ruin the fishery. There's no roads. You cannot float it. It was very complicated. And, and then I thought about doing two lodges just to fish three days in the first and three days in the second one in different. And, and, and that's how we started. So we got a couple of friends that were rich people and uh, also our customers. And we convinced them, we brought them there and then we convinced them to invest some money to build the first two lodges when we got the licenses from the government. And then we started in 2010. 
And that, that was the story. But we, we, it was really complicated. Yeah. Uh, and I was uh, in charge of the buildings and I did the first two lodges project and all that stuff. And it was a nightmare. Why? Believe me, it was a nightmare. Because it was, imp- I mean, we didn't know how to bring all the stuff from the nearest city, which is Trinidad. It's a small town. Now we can get to Trinidad in a dugout canoe in three, four days and nights of, of, of a ride, uh, crossing rapids. But those days nobody goes to, to Trinidad because there was no engines in the villages. And nobody from Trinidad goes there. So nobody knows how we lost a lot of windows, doors, stuff to, <laughs> to the buildings in the way up. You know, it was very complicated. And uh, I remember um, the first group of customers was coming in August 8th. We we did a a pre-season in 2009 with a special authorization of the government. And and then uh, we were were expecting the first group in August 8th. And I I went there, I don't know, 20 days before or 30 days before to see how everything was already done. And it was nothing, believe me. It was nothing. So I, it was just a few guys with a hammer doing like this, you know. So I had just a satellite phone and, and people in the cities and started to yell and bring a lot of my skills as an architect were very useful there. And so I started to bring carpenters and, and, People of, of building from different parts in 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 the in the small planes every day. Boom, boom, people, 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 and we finished it when the when when the first uh, group came. It was finished, not completely finished, not the not the area of the staff, for example, but the area of the of the guests was finished. Right. You know? Well, where does so, but flying in that first time, why did they have an airstrip there? I'm assuming the government would come in. Would anyone else fly in? No, this is a, a sad story. The, they had an airstrip there in Asunta and Oromomo because in the 90s there were also cocaine kitchens oh, there. Oh, right. Uh, that, that at the end of the 90s were broken by the government. So it was a coincidence, but at the same time there was a kitchen there and there was a fishing operation there in both uh, villages and then everything disappeared and then the Indians got alone and isolated. They have no hidden ID. When, when, we, uh, when I arrived there in the first time in Asunta, I made a short, a small, sorry, uh, statistic. They had a children, children mortality of about 60%. The, the chief of the village has Three childs dead. What was the main? You know? Because they were in the middle. They, they, they die for any reason, anything. They have no medicines, nothing. They have no even ideas. Uh, they have no possibilities of going out. So they simply die there for, for a flu or for a fever or whatever. Did they have any communication? Did so, they have any radios or f- satellite phones? They had radios. Those days they had a radio that they used to turn on at midday and communicate with another villages. And they have a radio in Trinidad also, but nobody take care of that. 
when those days when we went there, when we go there, sorry, to explore, we could be, for example, two or three days waiting for the plane to pick up, to pick us up. Three days in the village, like doing nothing, waiting for them to come because the communication was impossible. And uh, the logistics were completely different those days. That's why. So the the building was a nightmare itself, but it was it was very complicated those days. I I thought I was I was going to fail for the first time. I used to work those days. My speciality was I was a specialized in design of supermarkets. Uh, my office worked exclusively for one big company of supermarkets in Argentina, the biggest. So I was used to do very very fast buildings, big buildings in a record time. But also at the same time, I was focused in the, in the customer's area and probably the backstage was not finished because we had to open, you know. So I did exactly the same. <laughs> the customer's area was finished, but the poor staff <laughs> sitting on boxes, <laughs> just sl- sleeping in the, in the, in the floor, <laughs> yeah. you know. What about anyway. language? Because they speak a different language there, right? They speak Chiman and Juracare, but some of them, a few of them speak Spanish. Okay. Days. So we have we have translators, you know, when we were explaining the project. And if you ask me, I don't know if they understood exactly how the project will work in the future in the future. They were uh in the past they have really bad experience with white pe- white people, narcos, wood uh with cut, uh log cutters and and all, and probably this outfit too, I don't know. But uh, but they were very, how do you say? Uh, they were not very confident about winning money or getting benefits or whatever. So when they started to see that we were giving them what we promised, they were really surprised. You know, and that's how they started to defend the project uh, from any uh, threat. You know, we are working. I mean. 12 years, 12 seasons. So this will be our 13th season. It's obviously you know? working. It's a yeah. long time. <laughs> how did you pitch it? And how, yes. so how did you pitch it? And how did they feel about you being from Argentina? Uh, they have, a, you know, it's no difference for them. They have more suspicions from for, for the city people, you know, for people from Santa Cruz or Trinidad than from us. Fair enough. Probably. Because the relationship with people of outside was really bad. Yeah. The people from the cities used to treat the, to treat the, like, uh, them, sorry, like, uh, nothing, you yeah. know, like slaves. They were some, I mean, just a few people go there, but I remember in the, they told me the story of a woman that used to trade, uh, I don't know, a few machetes for, three or four big dugout canoes of the ceiling we use, the Hatata. You remember the roof of the... And she sell it in Trinidad for a lot of money. That That's the way they work, you know, with the white people work with them. It was completely unfair. So they were used to that. So what what did you offer them? What, what was, you know, quote unquote, in it for them? Basically, we offer them to share the profits of a, of the project. Yeah, right. Yeah, but in a different way. We we start. We made a business plan, which will be the the profit more or less 
And we created like an indigenous fee that represents 50% of the expected profit. So if things go good or wrong, it doesn't matter. They will get their money. And then they were very, very happy with that idea because they, they, they don't uh, want to make an investment or think this year we are not winning money this year we will invest the money in no or this year it was bad or this year no and uh let's say that our model is not the regular model of ecotourism in south america for indigenous indigenous villages is that the they are trained to to administrate their own ecotourism project and 99% 99% of cases, it fails because it's not in their culture. I mean, they are not entrepreneurs or they are not people from, I mean, and, it, and their, their culture is very particular. They are a community. They solve their problems in a meeting of the whole, whole community, even the particular or personal problems. And, uh, and the decisions are taken in a community way. So this is completely the opposite of a private company. So if you want to transform them in a private company that administrate a, 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 a lodge, it will fail for sure, you know? So what we propose them is to be partners and we will take care of the company problems and they will be happy, working, sorry, in their, in things that are related to their culture, like guiding or transporting all the, the heavy stuff across the river with their canoes or, or other stuff or preparing the, the, the roofs because we have to change it every year and, and cut uh, some wood to change it every year. And also they have their profit. So we help them to create an indigenous association, uh, com- which is uh, formed by all the communities and they are the owners of the, of the licenses, not us. You know, they are the owners of the project, not us. So we have a contract with them and, uh, and, uh, and we work with them as partners. We have to do our things and they have to do their things, you know, like protecting the, the, the land and the river and not fishing and some stuff. Fishing for, of course, they have their, their fishing with bows and arrows or catching some fish for eating, they still do it and it's okay, no problem with that. But they don't do commercial fishing and they don't allow somebody to go there and, and, and put a net and, and kill the fish, you know. That's the idea. And at the same time, it's a national park, so um, we created a, a fee for the national park because we know that the national park has no budget here. So the the national park authorities put a, a group of uh, rangers in the in the in the airstrips and they control uh, the all the the people that enter there you know they take notes of the names and the passports and everything and say hello welcome uh, da, 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 and they control the whole thing so the indian fee and the and the nat- and the national park fee uh, is completely transparent. You know? They know exactly how many people enter there and how many money or how much money they have to get. To, to get. But uh, but uh, besides that, to make it better, we decided to do a meeting every year. We do it in February. We do it also in Brazil. 
And, and in this meeting, we bring it, we do it in February because our, our year finished, our economical year, financial year finished in December. So in February, we do a meeting in one of the villages with the national park authorities and all the chiefs and all the people that want to go. Normally it's like a party. So more, many people go there. <laughs> it's a, it's a happy moment. So we show all the numbers of the, of the, past year, the past season, how many customers, everything. And, and we bring there our all, our, our company balance, our bank account, uh, resume. I mean, it's very transparent. And we give them four copies of the, of this just for them to audit if they want, or the national park authorities, if they want to audit it, they can. And, and then we also, uh, check how much they are winning and how much we are winning. And if it's fair and equitable, you know, we check it every, and, and the same we do in Brazil with all the, it, this is basic. Yeah. This is, I think, uh, uh, this is one of the reasons, uh, that, that we are there for 12 years and, and still we are all happy and, and it's getting better and better. It all sounds fair and amazing. How do you manage the fear of disease? Like COVID is coming to mind because I can only imagine if, if an angler from America accidentally brought something in. Is there any protocol in place for that? Yes, we did. A, a, I mean, in 2020, we closed. We did, um, as, as, as soon as the pandemic started, we, we talked with the with the Indian chiefs and the Indian authorities and also with the national park authorities. And we decided all together to close the 2020 season since the very beginning. We were not expecting to, oh, no, let's wait, let's see how it goes. No, we said, no, no way. Because, because of what you said, if somebody with the virus enter in the village, it, would, it could be a disaster, you know? So we, we thought of, uh, about the contingency plan in 2020 uh, to bring them medicines and vaccines. When we had the vaccines, we worked with the government and we got 800 doses of vaccines in 2021, in early 2021. So, and then at the same time in 2020, we sent, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was three or four planes of medicines coordinating with the doctor of Oromomo village and we send uh, non-perishable food and many stuff to compensate the the absence of the of the season you know uh, and also at the same time to convince them not to go outside not to go to to another places because they could they could get the disease and unfortunately, unfortunately i can tell you april that uh, we had no one single case in Simane villages, no one. I, I mean, so far, no one case in the villages, and and they got outside. I don't know what happened, but they don't have, they don't got it. You know, they don't get it. Sorry, and um, and uh, when we started the 2021 year, and the pandemic was more controlled here, and we got vaccines. We started to work with the national park authorities in the protocol. So all the customers have to have their PCR before entering the national park. 
and uh, and we made some uh, adjustments in the lodge for for that for this specific year and but we have no one single case in 2021 we were, we had 320 customers uh, no problem i recall when i went to bolivia i had to have a vaccine passport this would have been years ago before covid even you know obviously before the covid pandemic yellow fever yeah and yeah. so they did they checked my vaccine passport when i landed there so they do take vaccines seriously in bolivia yeah yeah but uh no, the yellow fever doesn't exist in bolivia i don't know for the last two decades probably <laughs> and it, but it was still in the in the regulations that you had to have it normally at, uh, in the last years nobody is as, as is being asked for that yellow fever certificate or whatever now this year 2022 the government changed the rules for the vaccinated people uh, speaking about covid you know so if you are not vaccinated it's like last year um, you have to have 10 days of uh, uh, domestic isolation and our package is 10 days so that we, we accomplished that, fortunately. That's why I say that we were very lucky because it was exactly the same amount of days of our, of our package, you know. So they, the, our people stayed isolated in Simane, you know. And, and, they, and, but nowadays the guys, the, the people that is not, that is vaccinated, sorry, do not have to accomplish these 10 days. They just have to bring a PCR, and I guess that probably in the next future it will not be more PCR or that stuff. But as it's happening in Europe or in different countries, you know. But but now still you have to have a PCR uh, to enter in the country. But it's because they don't change it. But it's no, we were very very fortunate about that. We don't have cases. We don't have problems with the Indians. I was really scared about, about that because you know that the Amazon Indians normally uh, um, have uh, had in the past at least a lot of problems with the the white people disease that were introduced in their lands. Yeah, yeah. That's all I can think about. Yeah, mostly yeah. about respiratory disease. So I thought it could be a disaster, you know. But, but nothing happened. No. Yeah, that's tough because 10 days of isolation with some of the most susceptible people or vulnerable people, it makes my, mm-hmm. gives me goosebumps. Well, I'm going to just hope that that, um, that that stays, that, that, that COVID stays out. Um, but I'll close that can of worms and open up a much more fun one with Dorado and the fish themselves. So when you say they're migratory, where are they migrating to and from? Well, in Bolivia, it's different from the Paraná. I was telling you in the Paraná system in the past, um, the largest migration recorded for uh, Dorado was done in the, in the 60s, and it was about 1,400 kilometers. A fish that was tagged in the Rio de la Plata and appeared in Misiones, uh, you know, that's, that's the largest migration recorded of Fedorado. 
but they are so adaptive because of the dams and all that stuff. And the same happened here in Bolivia. So they migrate in a range of temperature and conditions where they can live. You know, so they migrate from the headwaters to the to the lower parts of the rivers in the plains uh, in the summer after after spawning. Normally they spawn in December, January with the first big rains when the water is super high. Uh, the big females is like tarpon. The big ones are females. The big females start to to roll like dolphins and the, the and the males are around the female and pushing her so just they they, they are trying her, her her to spread the eggs and they fertilize the eggs and millions of eggs come downstream and it, and as it's a it's a flow some of them get to the small lagoons that created by the flood you know and then some of them are fortunate and can hatch, but of course the big majority dies. You know? So they might after that they migrate downstream, following the Savalo, the Savalo schools, uh, up to the very lower parts of the river in the plains, in the savannas where lagoons and all that stuff, but not that far as the Savalos because they cannot take the temperature or the pH of the water. They stay in an area completely still water, you know? It's not like, like, and then when the Sabalos come up again, uh, more or less in April, they start to come up and come up and come up, and then the Dorados come up with them. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At MidwayUSA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Okay, so they don't leave the river system. They don't go to the ocean or lakes or anything. They just stay... No, no, they, they migrate just in the river. And, uh, and our migration is shorter. It is about 200 kilometers or 300 kilometers at least, no more than that. We, we still uh, didn't study that migration. It's one, of the, uh, it's one of the topics that we have to study of the fish, uh, how far they migrate downstream, and also the residents phenomenon the residence behavior because there are some fish that gets in their headwaters and stay there and they don't migrate and nobody knows why but they don't migrate they are there now for example <laughs> if you go there they are they are there i don't know what they eat but probably insects or and what yes what we know is that when the big floods come 
they go into the small streams in the headwaters and stay there. And when the, the flood pass, they come back to the main river and that's what they do, the residents. Oh, you, know? you can recognize them. Yeah. They are older fish. You can recognize it. They have big tails, big scales, bigger head. It's different from the migratory fish in, in terms of the shape or the look. Yeah, I did notice that they they definitely have a different look from mm-hmm. when we were fishing down below. Yeah. So when we were when we were fishing up in in the smaller, I guess in the headwaters, were they? Please tell me they weren't the on. They weren't on beds. Those are resident fish. Some of them, yes. Some of them are migratory. Some of them are, are residents. The the residents normally have the black back, and as I told you, big scales, bigger fins, different. But uh, but I don't know if it's a something that happens to the same fish. We are also studying with the biologists the possibility of of that this dorado is a different species from the Paraná, an endemic species of Bolivia. You know, it, and it's very very possible uh, because the dorado is originally from the Paraná watershed, not from the Amazon, and our fish lives in the Amazon watershed. <laughs> So, so uh, there's a theory about how they they pass from one basin to the other basin, and uh, and it seems that the, it happened twelve thousand years ago in the last glacial era through a river called Parapeti, which is in the border between Bolivia and Paraguay. And the scientists know that this river suffered a geological phenomenon called Megaleque which is a change of drainage of some rivers in a, in a flat area. So it changed, it changed the drainage from the Parana system to the Mamore River, which is a tributary of the Madeira River and a tributary of the Amazon River. And, uh, and our theory is that the, those days, the Dorado probably conquered a much bigger area, much larger area of this basin because the temperature those days was much lower, and the Amazon was not a rainforest; it was a savanna. You know, so with this temperature, probably the dorado could kill all the fish around and and spread around. And what we think it happened is that along the years, the temperature began to rise, and then they get stuck in the headwaters of this chain of mountains in Bolivia, in a range of temperature where they can live, you know, because you find Dorado in all the rivers that, that are born in this, in this chain of mountains. The difference is that other places are not protected, so people kill them all or there are a few Dorados there, and our place is completely protected for decades. So that's why you have a very healthy population of Dorado there, and also a very healthy population of Sabalo. You remember the amount of savalo. It's, I mean, it's only comparable with the salmon migration in Alaska. Uh, the quantity of savalo that come up every year is crazy. You know? Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Just, I don't think that you know this, but when people ask me my favorite trip, that's the trip. Really? That trip <laughs> is, if, if I had to suggest a trip to anybody who wanted a bucket list trip, that is the trip. But the whole thing, you know, camping upstream, sight fishing to these huge Dorado and 
small rivers yeah. and then also fishing the large rivers for the migratory fish. The, the whole experience is something that I just cannot recommend enough. Thank you. I, I wish you can come back. I would love days. to come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my next question for you is about this parasite. So, you know, I remember Jeremy Wade did that episode about this this parasite that will swim up your urine stream as you roll your eyes. <laughs> yes, as a salmon. Um, as a salmon, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah that's right. Just jumps up the ladder just like a salmon no. into your private bits. Can you tell me a little bit about the Kandiro? Kandiru? The Kandiru is uh, like, a, like a thin catfish uh, or similar to a catfish that do not enter in your urine or urethra but yes they enter in the in the gill plates of the fish and and kill them immediately if they if they manage to suck the arteria uh, the fish start to bleed and and dies it's impossible to say that uh, so that happens sometimes when the water is murky and if you are if you are fighting the fish a lot close to the shore in a place where the water is a little murky downstream, there are more possibilities to get some, some of these parasites and, and that, that can kill a big dorado immediately. You know, they, it, you it doesn't die it? immediately. It doesn't die immediately, but you know that it will die for sure because they cut the arteria and they bleed, 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 bleed until they die. Yeah. So they're a thin catfish. Can you can you see them? I know you small, you were really yes, you worried can see about it. them. You can right. see it. Yes, yes. No, you cannot see it in the water, but you can see it when they go away from the gill plates. And sometimes we throw it away. We we take it with the hands and and, and throw it away and can save the fish. But if they can if they can uh, suck one one of the arterias of the fish. Uh, they are done, you know. So sometimes we try to not fight a lot, you know, or fight a proper time, not 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 get the fish completely done. Also because it's not good for the fish. It's not only because of it's very rare to get candy roost, but it happens, you know. And also it's not a good idea to to have the fish almost dead because of fighting it. That, that's why I don't I'm not very friend of the idea of fighting big dorados with a smaller rod or, a, you know, with a, with a six weight or seven weight rod. I mean, it has, for me, it's just my opinion, but I think that it's nonsense because you have to have a rod that can manage a fish properly and fight it the time you have to fight it and then release it. What else is a, is a bit of a, concern there i know i was looking at the caiman but you said that they only eat fish they only eat fish and there are just a few in the headwaters in downstream in the area of the lagoons you you find more caimans but I, nobody knows about an attack of a caiman in the jungle i mean one of the most uh problematic issues we have to fight against when we started simane was the idea of the Amazon as, as a place that can kill you uh, all day, <laughs> you know, every every 10 foot you have an animal that will jump into you. It's important. No, that's not true. You know, 
the opposite, the, the jungle is very friendly in terms of bugs also. It's very friendly. It's, I mean, it's worse to be in sometimes in some places of Buenos Aires, you have much more mosquitoes than, than, than in Simane. There's not many mosquitoes because we are in the mountains, you know. There are some sunflies. Of course, we use uh, repellent, and then there's no. I never seen an anaconda in 15 years, and never. And of course, there are many jaguars, but they don't attack you. you know? We have some uh, see sites of of jaguars. You saw prints. You see prints. Sorry, uh, almost every day, fresh prints, but we never had an an attack of a jaguar, not even close to an attack of a jaguar, you know. And what about and stingrays? The, How many have your guests have stingrays? Stingray? <laughs> uh, well, stingrays are uh, are dangerous, but uh, but we have just I think in twelve years of operation, we have a couple of cases of customers that were beaten by stingers, stingray, sorry, and and we know how to manage it, how to to uh, work with the wound very fast, and uh, and the same day they stay, they, they keep fishing. You know, it's very rare because in the headwaters it's very rare. If you go downstream in the sandbars, you remember where where you fish with poppers that day. That is more possible because the water is murky. You don't see, and they like more the sun. And in the headwaters you see it when you are wading. You see that you, if you have a stingray there, you see it. And, and always you walk behind your guide. So it's quite impossible to have an accident with a stingray. Fortunately, we are very lucky with that. We don't have accidents of our customers. And, um, but coming back to the fishing, I think that one of the most interesting things in, of Simane is that you have a, probably the largest variety of techniques and possibilities to catch a dorado. I mean, if you fish from a boat in another place uh, and you're cast into the structure and you don't see the fish, it's okay, you know. But here you do side casting or you cast to a feeding frenzy. You remember the feeding frenzy? Yeah. Can you yes. can you explain to people what a feeding frenzy is? Because I think that was the coolest part, one of the coolest parts for me. It is. I mean, well, the dorados used to attack. The dorados, sorry, used to attack in groups like a like a gang. You know, they are really bad fish, you know, <laughs> really bad. They're aggressive. Yeah, they very are aggressive. <laughs> and then and the sabalos are millions along the river. The sabalo is sixty percent of the biomass of the river. And the sabalo so, kind of looks like a white fish. I mean it, it's, it's like a white fish. It's little bait. Yes, they're, they're about, about what do you think? one to two pounds, more or less. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and has a lot of protein and uh that's why the Indians feed on the sabalo. And also lots of mammals and birds feed on the sabalo, not only the fish, you know. So mm. sabalo is crucial for the whole system. It's is what keeps the system alive. You know? So so they, they the sabalos are normally in the in the shallow areas of the river just because of protection. And you can enter in the water and they will not go into the deeper parts because they don't want to go there. You know, you can walk through thousands of sabalos and they are around you. They go a little bit away, but they come back to you again. And then 
So what happened is that Dorados uh, start to push the sabalo to a very shallow area. You can see the fish doing this, like in gangs, moving around, and they start to push it and push it and push it and push it. And when they have all the fish in, an, in a shallow area, they start the attack all together. So what you see from outside is uh, is sabalos flying away, you know, like a tuna feeding frenzy like that. Oh, sabalos flying away all over the place, birds coming. And you and see yellow. the bugs. Yes, the yellow, yellow bugs. everywhere. And, yes, and crashing fish. Like, ah. But the, the, the thing is that these super aggressive fish can be that spooky than a brown trout when they are in the headwaters in a pool. You can see a fish of about 30 pounds staying in a pocket like this, you know, like nothing. And, and if you do a wrong cast or if, if he sees or she sees the line or if you make a noise when you are waiting or, or you step on a branch and look, that's a small noise, this fish will go away. Very slowly, you know, it's not a stupid aggressive fish. I mean, it's it, the, the the range of behavior is so large. They they can change the, their behavior every day. You know, it's very it's very it's very interesting to fish the dorado because of this because you never know. It's not you are doing the same thing and you will have the same result. No, it's not like this. Have you ever seen them eat insects? Because we were obviously fishing streamers and big bait fish patterns, but do they eat insects? They do. Well, actually, in one of the lodges, in the Secure Lodge, the guides and the manager started some years ago, they started to catch Dorado on dry flies consistently, I mean. Like dead drifted uh, or raked through the... No, like, like fishing for trout. Really? Trout. Trout. Big, big dry flies like uh, Chernobyl lands, but with a big hook, casting upstream to a fish that is laying in a pocket like this. And the difference is, <laughs> it's amazing. This fish that you see that, that crush the streamer like, like this, when you cast a dry fly, he just go up like a trout and do, take it like nothing. He take it. You have to be, I mean, if you are a trout angler, you can do it perfectly. I'm a little bit uh, rude for that. <laughs> so I don't know if I can do it. I never tried, but I've seen it. Last year, we went with Meredith McCor, uh in the, in the Secure Lodge and filmed a little bit about, about that. And she's a trout angler, or she knows how to fish with the dries. And she got, I mean, fish of about 25 pounds on rice and also paku on rice. Yeah. That is like fishing so for trout. It's exactly the same. Casting upstream, controlling the drag, exactly the same. But you see this big beast coming to the dry like like a trout. Are you finding that they're getting smarter every year? Yes. Not every year. Mm, probably in in the first five years of Simane. And they get like a level of, of, of knowledge and they, they know, you know we have to develop different techniques or, or thinner wire. For example, in the first years, we use the regular um, seven threads wire 
color camo. Now I, I personally, I use uh, the nitty wire of scientific anglers. Sorry, if I, I don't know if I can say uh, a brand. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Okay. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, this is a very, very thin non-coated wire, black, quite, quite invisible, you know? And 35 pounds. So the difference between the regular wire and this wire is, especially in the headwaters. And we have to go thinner and thinner and thinner, you know. It's, and especially these guys that fish with rice use a 26-pounder wire, for example, you know. And no, but I mean, they get a level of, 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 uh, of knowledge, as I said, or, or, uh, smart but at the same time we we find new ways and we get more sharp you know we we, we were getting more sharp and more sharp and understood better the techniques how to fish in the first years it was easy to catch them because they were really wild completely wild now they are still wild but they are smart you know mm-hmm. so yeah, it gets a little more, more difficult but, but i mean but it, I mean, we 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 catch a lot of big fish every year, anyway, and big paku and and still it's still. I mean, the, the fish are there. Nobody's killing it, but uh, but they are smarter. How and you know, we sorry. Go sorry. ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, we are starting last year. We did we did a, a, an exploratory week, and this year we are starting a heli fishing program from the Pluma Lodge. So. We, we we did a week of that, and we went in, I don't know, five to ten minutes. We reached places where no human being has been ever before, oh believe me. Gosh, and that, there's, about, so there's about two dozens of headwaters, of bits of headwaters, where no human being has been ever. I mean, you cannot imagine, April, the wilderness, the amount of jaguar tracks and the amount of fish, resident fish, the amount of pacus. It was ridiculous, you know? And they're some of my favorites. Because even just flying the drone over, when I look back at that footage, I just remember thinking, what else is out there? (laughs) It looks so adventurous. That is really exciting. Do you find that you balance a fine line between exploitation and sharing adventure no what do you mean sorry well see i know the fine line between see see, i personally selfishly would want to be in a helicopter and experience everything Oh, okay yeah yeah, but i'm not i'm not rich and the only way to afford that would be to have to somehow manage to get it into my business somewhere how do you where do you do you have an ethical line that you draw that you won't cross oh yeah now i understand yes yes Yes, I uh, well, there are two things here. One is that the natives are asking us for expanding the project every year. You know, we have to deal with it because the project has a limit. We cannot put more people where we are fishing. We are, we are, we reach the, a good number of anglers on each lodge, and we control it because of the biological research. You know, we know exactly how many fish we catch every season, the weight, everything. So we know if the fishery is going up or down or if it's stable and the fishery is stable. Uh, getting a little bit better. 
in, in, I don't know. I think it's because we are developing better techniques. I don't know, but, but what happened? But it's getting better. And uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of headwaters that are completely unreachable because of the geography. You know, I'm I'm speaking about. I mean, one of the place, the further place I I went was the Itirisama River. You remember where I went with you uh, when we made that outcome upstream? Made the which? We, when we made that outcome upstream, you remember? Yeah, yeah. The headwaters, I, that, that river. Well, you remember we went one day upstream. You know, in 2013, uh, with a group of, of, of people, uh, of friends and, and, and a camera guy, we went six days upstream doing gums. Uh, so I thought, I, I, I thought I, I was reaching, I mean, the, the nirvana and it was, I mean, it was amazing, you know, but I passed this place in, in four minutes with the helicopter last year. I, I saw the place. I remember the place. I mean, it was just four minutes <laughs> from the lodge with the helicopter. So we think that we will be, we are fishing with four people per week with the helicopter and just two months per year. So we will be fishing every, uh, each bit, probably once per two weeks in our calculation. So I think it will keep uh, as it is right now. And, and we land in a sandbar or near rock bar and then we fish and come back to the lodge. We don't do camps or nothing, you know. And at the same time, the second, the second theme is that, um, we are, you, I, I told you we are working with the wildlife conservation society that has a big office here in Bolivia. And uh, we have the chance of using this uh, helicopter thing, this helicopter program to study places where no human being has ever been there, you know, that we don't know what we will find exactly in terms of biologic uh, stuff, you know, probably new species or not only about the fish, I mean, about everything. Yeah. About, about insects or whatever. What I've seen in that exploratory week last year was crazy. I mean, the landscapes and the waterfalls and it was crazy, crazy, completely unbelievable. You are living um, my dream. Uh, <laughs> like that is, that is my dream. I mean, just miles, thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles of wilderness. Nobody's been there. And to be able to do it without harming anybody. Body mm-hmm. or anything you know what i mean yeah because so exactly. what about what about flash flooding is that a real worry up there no we're no. fishing the dry in the dry season no we can have some floods but uh if you speak about the helicopter it, it cannot fly if, if the weather is bad or if the river is blown up we know because we are in the same system and if the river is blown up we will not fly because we have no place to land you know, basically that and we have Wi-Fi in the lodges, so we have uh, the possibility of checking the forecast and all that stuff. No, and speaking about the ethical line, uh, you know, April. What happens in the Amazon normally is that, and with this project or this kind of project, because the same happened in Brazil, 
if you don't develop anything in a, in a very wild area, something will happen eventually. It will be drug dealers or illegal miners or log cutters or, or agriculture or whatever, but it will happen for sure. You know, it's a matter of time. It's, it's a matter of time. All the other, I, I explored probably all the rivers along this chain of mountains or barely all the rivers. And you cannot imagine the difference. I mean, in terms of conservation that, that, that these rivers have comparing with Simani, you know, because of the amount of people and the disasters people do. I mean, starting with net fishing or dynamite or miners or whatever. I mean, gold miners here and in Brazil is the same, you know, that they poison the water completely. And uh, because they, they use mercurio, I don't know how to say mercurio in English. So the fact is that if we don't develop something in the wilderness, even when, of course, it affects a little bit the wilderness, our presence or the presence of the project, it will be much worse in the near future. You know, if Simania doesn't exist, believe me, these guys would be doing some, some, some other thing, probably a very bad thing for the environment and for their culture, for sure, you know. I, ha I, I know people in another limited limits of the national park that are in contact with civilization. They lost completely their habits and their culture. They don't use bows and arrows anymore because they are thinking about money and, and they don't know even how to push a pole and, and drive a dugout canoe and they get drunk the whole day and it's, it's what happened, you know? And unfortunately, that's the real deal. So, Even when uh, we know that our projects affect the, the, the environment, uh, I mean, I think it's much better to affect it a little bit with a kind of project that is like this, that can protect the area and benefit the, the owners of the, of the land, the real owners of the land, than, I mean, I don't know, imagine if they discover oil or, or, or miners or whatever they are. No? It could be a disaster. And uh, and that's what happened. That's what I think, at least speaking about this fine, thin line, you know. Because we've seen it happen before, haven't we? Yes, uh, in many places. Yeah. In South America, you cannot imagine. Yeah, it It's, gets real crooked over there too, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Um. So you're open for business now. If someone wants to book, how far how far in advance do they need to? get their booking in well, uh fortunately for us uh, we are fully sold this year in 2022 we had a i don't know we have 380 something customers coming because we are we are working with a helicopter also this two months and we sold all the places people want to come and i bet and, <laughs> Yes, we have a seventy percent reserved in 2023, and we are open in 2024. And, and I mean, it's it's very good. At the same time, it's a problem because some people can't come in September in a week, for example, for say or June, and they want next the same week in the in the following year, and and, for, and the week is occupied, you know. And, and uh, honestly, we don't know how to manage this. 
because it's about the the demand. The people want to fish for Dorado in Simane, and that's what happened. And I'm being completely <laughs> honest. I mean, it's not. I mean, I'm not. Uh, how do you say this in English? Oh. When you are playing poker, I'm not laughing. You know? No, 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 I know. <laughs> but it's true. And just, well, and also, you know, I get people emailing me every single day asking to be on the show to promote their operations. I reached out to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I reached, I okay. emailed you a couple of weeks ago, right? You, you didn't ask to be on the show because your name comes up all the time when I'm interviewing really? people. Yeah, I was, I was interviewing Marina Gibson and your name came up. And I just thought, <laughs> I was like, well, I need to just get him on the show because it does come up often in conversation. And so, um, yeah, but no, Marcelo did not reach out to me. Um, I reached out to him, but uh, yeah, so here we are. But I would love to come back with Charles and Adelaide. That would be awesome. Oh, it would be fantastic. I Do would you bring, bring your Mich- daughter? and Zoe. Yes, she loves yeah. the jungle. She loves it. She's eight she's, years old already. She's been going there since she was a baby, right? Mm-hmm. Eight months, first time. Yeah. <laughs> she so she loves the jungle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she's a city girl, of course. Uh, if she sees an insect that just yells and run and whatever, but when when she's there, somehow something happened, and, and she's so happy there. She loves to go. Uh, the problem is that we are fully sold, so it's difficult for, for us to go and have place or room for us or whatever. But anyway. Yeah. No, but it would be great if you can come back. I think it would be a great story and or whatever. At least come and, and visit us. Yeah. Like I said, it, it is it's my favorite trip. It really, really, really is. You've got something special. So I know it's getting late there. I'll wrap it up. Um before I go or before we go, is there anything that you wanted to add or to ask me? Honestly? No. I think I I mean sorry, but I speak a lot. No, uh, you did so great. I, You've done really? fantastic. Yes, okay. absolutely. I don't know, because I don't want it to sound like a propaganda or uh, whatever. But the fact is that mm, the high majority of the customers notice and are very surprised about how we managed to get the service we have in the middle of nowhere, you know, and having great... Uh, food and Argentine Malbecs and really good drinks and Wi-Fi and laundry every day and good accommodations in the middle of nowhere. And the logistics for us are a nightmare, but for the customers are very easy. You know, you go to a five-star hotel in Santa Cruz and next day you fly out into the jungle and you are there. It's not a big deal. But anyway, this is, I mean, I don't. I don't think we should talk about that in podcast. But uh, but the truth is that it it, it is very expensive. Uh, our programs are very expensive because they are very expensive. You cannot imagine the budget of maintenance and logistics we have. It's crazy, crazy, yeah, and the amount of things that go wrong every day. You know, every season. We have something different to fix or something to think about because we did it wrong and some engines or generators that are broken that we don't expect it that every time something happened. But at the same time, it's a great adventure. Believe me. It's something that, I mean, keeps me alive, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and make me feel so good. You know, I, I mean, that's it's not about the money; it's about uh, doing it. You know. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, and um, we just have to fish together again soon. Oh, it will be great! Thank you for for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, I'm always passionate about this kind of talking, and uh, and it's a pleasure to talk with you again. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. You'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.